Hey all, this is Jules, and today we answer the question, what truly makes you well? We'll answer this question with the help of expert Dr. Deborah Gilboa, or as we affectionately call her, Dr. G. She has done the research and she states that it is not optimism, it is resilience. It is resilience that makes the difference between getting better and getting well. Dr. G is an expert in the study of this topic that is on the tongues of everybody these days, resilience. She's a TEDxer. She is a talk show phenom. You can see on the Today Show, The Rachel Ray Show, and she brings it to the table today. Please enjoy this conversation with one of our favorite humans, Dr. G, and start getting obsessed with your life. Hey guys, welcome to Obsessed. Think of us as your personal development entourage, all wrapped up into one podcast. If you're committed to your personal development and believe your life is meant for more, then get ready to learn the tools you need to elevate this experience called life. Get obsessed with your life, just like us. We are Tia, Tristan, Mika, and Julie, and we are obsessed with humans on the verge of change. Hi, I'm Tristan, and I'm obsessed with your emotional well-being. Welcome, everybody. This is Jules, and today you're in for a big treat. We have Dr. Deborah Gilboa here. Not only is she a doctor, she is an expert on resiliency. She is a featured speaker on TEDx. She's an author and parenting expert. She wrote the book, Get the Behavior You Want Without Being the Parent You Hate. I just love that. I love it. She is my sister from another mister. We both have four boys, so we get each other. She is a regular guest expert on The Rachel Ray Show and featured a lot on the Today Show as well. So I would like to welcome our girl, Dr. G, as we affectionately call her. Welcome to Obsessed. Thank you so much, Dr. G. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And we'd like to kick off every interview by asking, Dr. G, what are you obsessed with? I am currently a little obsessed with Clubhouse, I have to admit. I say that like it's a confession because I am an Android user, which for other, other people would be a different confession. And you can't get on Clubhouse with Android. So for a while, I was like, well, if they don't want me, I don't want them. And then somebody in my life who really does not have it for social media was like, okay, but seriously, you're, you're not on Clubhouse. I think it's your spirit home. I think you would love it. So I went and got with, with somebody's help. I got a refurbished, I think it's like an iPhone six. I don't know. It's the earliest one that you can do Clubhouse on. And it's all that I use it for. It's like this separate little device. Anyway, I really love it because it's genuine conversations. It's people not having to worry so much about how they look and not having to worry about how many followers they have because it's so new that I'm not saying nobody is obsessed with their number of followers, but you can have really authentic conversations and make really meaningful connections with people. And besides that, I am totally obsessed with the CNN documentary, Searching for Italy with Stanley Tucci that you can stream for free. And it's six episodes of eating your way across Italy. So that. Oh my gosh, you were poised to answer that question. Obsessed with Clubhouse. And that's how I met Dr. G. And I mean, making authentic connections like this, Clubhouse is a platform that you must try out. And if you're an Android user, 
there is a way out. Still your kid's school yeah. iPad? Is yeah. that unreasonable? That's not know. unreasonable. And they're not using <laughs> it for a good. way out. No. Uh, well, welcome, Dr. G. So we're so happy to have you. And it's so funny that you mentioned that you're obsessed with Clubhouse because our Jules is obsessed with Clubhouse. So you're in great company. You're a great company here. <laughs> so I think first we'd just like to understand who are you and how have you become the person you are today as an expert on resiliency and parenting? What was your journey to get from A to Z? Okay. I'm going to try and do this, but the cliff notes way, right? Where you hear the interesting stuff and not anything else. I was lucky enough to go to college and I got my degree, like most doctors did, in drama, in theater. And actually, I wasn't thinking about med school. I thought when I was really little, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And then maybe seventh or eighth grade, we dissected something and I was totally grossed out. So obviously being a doctor was off the table because like I thought I was going to throw up. So I fell in love with doing theater and I fell in love with the people in theater, maybe especially a boy. And I was like, oh my gosh, you can go to school for this. So I did. I went to college in a drama department that was like a conservatory program where you just did that. Graduated in four years in the major I started with, which I got to tell you in the early 90s was pretty remarkable. And then I got work in theater and I worked for the next six years in theater and television. And I was a nomad like most people are in that situation where I was traveling around and doing whatever. And I got an amazing job. I got the best job I was probably ever going to get, even though I was peaking basically in my early 20s at an improv theater in Chicago called The Second City. And oh, I know I, that. That is amazing. It was amazing. But it was also rough. There was a lot of substance use, there were a lot of really toxic relationships. And the person that I'd replaced had been there for 27 years, and I wasn't even 27 years old. And so I was like, okay, this is cool, but I might want to be something else when I grow up. And I'd been volunteering for some years as an emergency medical technician on ambulances. And so I called a friend of mine who was a paramedic and I said, I think I want to quit and be a paramedic. And he said, you'd be terrible. And I was like, what now? (laughs) And he said, you don't have it. And I said, what are you talking about? I'm smart enough to be a paramedic. He said, no, it's not about smarts. He said, you want to change things. You want to fix things. Every time we run a call together, you're telling me about the systems that would make it work better. He's like, just go be a doctor. I said, I can't be a doctor. I'm 25 years old. I'm too old for that. I say that now at 50, right? And I'm able to say it with a straight face because at the time I meant it with a straight face. Anyway, I called a medical school, Northwestern, because there was no internet. And I said, I'm thinking about applying to medical school. What's required? And this woman said, a bachelor's. And I said, in what? Assuming she would say biology or science or something. And she said, college. I totally have one of those. So I finished out another season at Second City and I moved back to the town that I'd gone to university in. And I took biology and chemistry and physics and organic chemistry and an MCAT review course all in one year. Do not recommend. Zero stars. And then I was accepted to medical school. And so in medical school, I discovered this really weird thing, which is not everybody likes to speak in front of people and not everybody likes to get groups feeling a particular way. They want one-on-one interactions. And I really liked both. So I found myself often speaking in front of groups and presenting research or explaining what a group had decided to a larger group of people. And I became, as I trained in medicine and I got my degree and I went on 
finished my residency, I started to discover that doctors do a lot of good in one-on-one relationships with patients, but there were some basic things that we were missing as physicians in helping people. We had already, by the time I was a full-on doctor in the early 2000s, we had learned to not make decisions for patients and to really try and listen to patients. And we were starting to understand racial bias in medicine and in research. And we were starting to understand misogyny and sexism in, in medicine and in research. But what we didn't understand is what really makes people well, not what helps them get better, but what really makes them well. And what I was figuring out as a starry-eyed, idealistic, young attending physician is that however much I might believe, and I do, that it matters if your doctor listens to you and collaborates with you and that they know about medicine and that they prescribe well, meaning carefully as well as smart, and that they do the right tests and they diagnose things well. The truth is none of those are nearly as impactful on your own sense of well-being as something else. And so I spent about five or six years trying to figure out what that something else was. And it turns out to be resilience, not optimism, not affluence, not even education, resilience. And so I thought, okay, I don't want to stop seeing my patients. I have a bunch of reasons to still want to be at my federally qualified health center, seeing these high needs folks and being in those relationships. But I also want to speak to groups of people about what I'm learning about resilience, because that is the difference between getting better and getting well. That is amazing. And I had the fortune of getting some of your your background information. So you filled in some gaps for me. So that's awesome. And to our listeners, you just said something really interesting. You basically said that resiliency trumps optimism. I've never heard of that before. I've never heard it put in those words before. Can you go maybe a little deeper? So if I was listening to this, I'd be like, okay, one lady's opinion, nice. But I really want to talk to you about how this is research-based. We have this idea of resilience and, and everybody has a somewhat, this is what a friend of mine calls a bucket word. We carry around this bucket, all of us, with this idea of resilience, but we all have slightly different things in the bucket. When I ask audiences, because I work with businesses and corporations and also groups of parents and educators, and I say, what does resilience look like in people? When you see someone who's resilient, what do they do or show or how do they behave that makes you feel like, oh, they are being resilient? And I do it actually as a word cloud. I pull people while we're talking on Zoom or in person so that everybody can see what other folks are saying. And the words that the highest number of people agree with come up bigger. And optimism is always one of those words, confidence, strength, but also flexibility and adaptability and curiosity and creativity and humor and bouncing back and right so and being able to ask for help all these ideas so i thought this is fascinating i was coming up with a pretty similar word cloud dozens of times in a row no matter what group whether i was working with etna and cvs employees or i was talking to the national association of secondary school principals right so middle and high school principals or i was working with congressmen and women I was getting the same word cloud, but I thought, where's the science? What's the research say? So when you look at the tests that have been scientifically validated that score people on their resilience, they ask, when you put together the five most scientifically validated quizzes, they ask like 118 questions. But when you boil it down, they really ask about eight skills and eight attributes. And one of those attributes is optimism, but only one 
of those 16 factors. The difference between a skill and an attribute is a skill is something you learn to do. An attribute is something that you might or might not have. You can grow it, but you start at some sort of baseline with it. And examples of those attributes for resilience are optimism, faith, although not necessarily in a religious institution, but faith in something higher or larger than yourself, whether it's a set of principles or a motto, whatever it is. But also sense of humor is one of them. Self-efficacy, your, when you're in a situation, how much is your inclination to say, well, what can I do about this? That's self-efficacy. Do I feel like I can impact the world around me? And there are all these skills and traits, attributes that make up resilience and how we recognize resilience as a society. So that's why I say optimism is one thing, but it's not the whole thing. That's amazing. You mentioned in your, I remember listening to your amazing TEDx talk and for everyone out there, please look into Dr. G, follow her on social media and check out her amazing videos on YouTube. She has several, she also has a YouTube channel. One of the things you mentioned, I want to look at my notes real quick. So I'm going to look away for a second. One of the things that you mentioned is building a network of support within for resiliency. So can you explain that for our obsessed listeners? Absolutely. Building connections is one of those eight resilience skills. And I think, and I'm really curious what you ladies think. I think that women are told we're supposed to be there for other people, but we ought to be able to do it all on our own, right? We shouldn't ask of others. We shouldn't lean on others. So we want people, we would never want our best friend to think that about herself. We would never want our daughter, our mom, our sister to think that about herself. But for me, I ought to be able to handle my stuff myself. And that is damaging to resilience. The wider and the deeper, and I can explain what I mean about those two ideas, you can build your connections, the more resilient you'll be. When you face something, and I should give my definition of resilience, I think, so people know what I'm talking about. When I define resilience, I define it this way. It's your ability to navigate change, any change, the change you want and the change you don't. All change requires resilience because all change, even the stuff we really want, pray for, work towards, causes stress. So it's your ability to navigate change and come through it, the kind of person you want to be. Not necessarily the kind of person your kids want you to be or your partner wants you to be or your boss wants you to be. Maybe not necessarily reunited with them, but more the kind of person or as much, at least the same amount or more the kind of person that you want to be. So when you're talking about navigating change, and that's where we need our resilience, it's to navigate change. When things stay the same, when you get your best snack and your favorite show and your comfiest hammock with the sun in the right spot and your pillow exactly like you like it and all your people elsewhere, you don't need a lot of resilience at that moment because <laughs> nothing's changing. You have controlled your environment for the next 42 minutes. It is exactly the way you need it to be. But resilience is what we call on every time we navigate change. And when we navigate change, the more connections we have, we don't have to call on them, but knowing they're there, that's what builds our resilience. Wow. That is powerful. That's powerful stuff, Dr. G. And I know just from listening to your TEDx talk, you have a personal journey, which tested your resilience. And would you be oh, open to a couple of things? Just a couple of things. I mean, our listeners maybe going through similar situations, divorce, death of a loved one, 
would you mind sharing your story? And it's a lot easier said than done. It's a lot easier said than done. For sure. There's no question. And one of the things about resilience, and actually, I wonder if either of you would be willing to, I'm not going to ask you to do it out loud because we just met, but just do this kind of exercise with me and tell me what you think. If you could think back to five years ago, so we're recording this in the spring of 2021. So that means 2016. So you might have to think, okay, well, how old were my kids then? Or where did I live that spring? Or just, But if you can take yourself back to the spring of 2016 and think about what was the biggest stressor that you were facing at that time? You don't tell me what it was. You don't have to say what it was, but can you remember it? Oh, yeah. Yes. At the time, what would you have scored that stressor on a scale of one to 10? I'm a doctor. We put everything on a scale of one to 10 because we're just not, we're not that math people. So on a scale of one to 10, if I'd gone back in the way back machine and met you then, and we'd hit it off and you told me about whatever that was. And I said to you, how bad is it? How would you have scored it then on a scale of one to 10? A 10. 10, okay. easy. All right. So if you had to face that now, who you are now, what you've gone through, what you've experienced, that same stressor came up right now, what number would you give it? Non-existent probably, because I'm over it. It would be a two. Maybe a, maybe a three. Okay. Because you built your resilience. It sucked. Can I say sucked on your show? Because it sucked, right? You can say worse words here <laughs> if you like. It was awful. Like a lot of exercise sucks and is awful. But if you do it, it does make you more fit. It does make you stronger. And this isn't like suck it up buttercup. This is to recognize how far you've come. So when I look back at my own journey, I'm not trying to get out of answering your question, even though it might sound a little bit like I am. When I look back at my own journey, I can tell you that in the fall of 2014, when I came home from a speaking trip, literally one of those like come home, do bedtime with the kids, do morning in school the next day to get the kids to school. And then bye, you guys, I won't be home again until Saturday to go to another work trip. And when I got home, I opened my mail that had accumulated for a couple of days and saw that I was getting audited by the IRS for my new business, which I had only started two years before. I was getting audited for the first year of my business when I probably wasn't awesome at record keeping because I've never been awesome at record keeping. So that was super intimidating. And I was really worried because my mom, I'm an only child. My mom had had a fall about four weeks previous where she had broken her pelvis. And she, and so I was traveling back and forth to Chicago a lot as well in and around my work trips and my kids. And we were in the birthday season, as I call it, because for whatever reason, I had all my kids within a few weeks of each other, because obviously I don't know what causes it or how to plan things. And then I tripped over one of my kids' toys and I fell and cracked a molar. And I did bedtime with my kids and I did the morning with my kids. And then I got on the road to drive to Cleveland for my speaking engagement, got there, checked in with the person who was hosting the event that night that I was going to go to this auditorium and sit on this panel and speak. And I settled into my hotel to do a little bit of work because the work's got to get done. And then I got a call from my mom's husband, who not my dad, but my stepdad saying, that she wanted to go on hospice and the nurses that they had talked to said that they should call me and I should come and she might die that weekend. And I have to tell you that like the good news is I discovered that my tooth, I could totally ignore. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I was shocked three months later after her death and funeral and all that stuff to get another letter from the IRS that I hadn't responded to their first one. I had completely forgotten about it. It was like it never happened. 
anyway, that was also right after my mom died, the month that I really started to face the fact that my marriage was crumbling and that my husband's health was in question and a whole bunch of other things. So I went through this season that at the time I thought, wow, this is a hard week or this is a hard month. But looking back on it, I can tell you that year was kind of a loss in terms of doing anything except I'm not even sure I was treading water. It was like periods of holding my breath and sinking under the water, bursting up and gasping for a second and then dropping back under of nearly drowning. And it forced me to do some things that I had really resisted. You know, it forced me to talk to a therapist about my relationship with my mom. I didn't want to do that. We were okay. I was making it work. It forced me to tell some people I was close to that I wasn't okay when I will tell you, having nothing to do with my business, my personal brand is I'm okay. I'm okay. When I was in high school, this is the story I think best illustrates just how okay I front myself to be. When I was in high school, a friend of mine that I had known for three years in high school, we were really close, talked to, found each other every morning and, you know, like gossiped about our lives. And then before we went to class, she came over to my house a mess because the guy that she loved had broken up with her. She knocked on my door on a Sunday evening without calling first because just trust me, 1987 or 88, it was okay then. She knocked on the door. My mom went to the door, saw that a friend of mine that she had heard of a lot and was obviously in tears and was like, oh yeah, absolutely. Just go on up. Debbie's in her room. You can go to her room and talk to her. She comes into my room sobbing. And I was like, oh my gosh, Liz, what happened? And she's like, I'll get to that in a minute. I can't believe you have parents. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And she's like, I just, I've known you really well for four years. And I never pictured you as someone who had parents. You just seem to have it all together yourself. We were 16 years old. I'm just saying, I like to front always being okay. So that experience forced me to build connections and it forced me to set boundaries and it forced me to open to change my vision of what my future might look like. And it forced me to manage discomfort. And those are four of the eight resilience skills. And I thought I was doing okay with them, but going through that really forced me to do those things. And it sucked. And not but. And I'm so much less winded now by some of the other stressors that I face. It's not to say that losing my mom wouldn't have been a five now, but it was a 12 out of 10 then. And when we go through difficult things, if we have empathy for ourselves and allow ourselves to not be okay, we can do more than just get through it and front being okay. We can actually build our mental health and build our mental fitness so that the next stressors are not as hard for us to handle. And you went through divorce and death. Wow. And those are the biggest stressors we as humans can encounter. I mean, just looking back and bringing this story and infusing it into your brand, the brand of Dr. G, because at the heart of it, you're just a woman, you're a mom, you are a caretaker and a helper, but bringing your vulnerability and your story is so powerful in terms of connecting and being a leader. Yeah, and I totally didn't want to. <laughs> and I mean, how was that? Because I know I have times where I'm hesitant to share my story because you think that you do have to be perfect as a woman, you know? And Jules, honestly, 
there are women listening right now who are like trying to catch glimpses of my parenting, of my momming, and they're kind of judging. And I, I'm not mad about that. We judge each other all the time. We went through this phase in our society where we'd say no judgment. And when my kids came home saying that, I sat them down and I gave them the mom finger and the mom look. I said, don't you tell me no judgment. I said, when you say don't judge, you actually mean don't be a jerk to me based on your assumptions about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. I said, but if you don't judge your friends' behaviors, the opportunities in front of you, if you don't judge, you are going to find yourself grounded because your judgment, having good judgment is crucial to navigating life with any kind of integrity in any kind of way that gets you to what it is you're trying to get to, you know, to be the kind of person you want to be. So I understand that women are listening and they're, they're judging. They're like, whoa, you were traveling that much and your mom was in the hospital and you had these four kids who are, gosh, in 2014, my kids would have been 12, 10, eight, and six, right? So how could you have been doing that? And we judge all the time based on the snippets we can hear. We don't have a three-dimensional picture. You don't know what I was doing for them and how they were and what we were communicating and who else was in their lives and what was going on. But we listen for, well, what would I do? And do I think that's okay? And that makes us want to look perfect all the time because it is super uncomfortable to be judged. And not just because you might get it wrong, but worse, what if you get it right when you're judging me? That's really hard. What if you see what I see, which is all my flaws and all the places that I've messed up and all the things I could have done better. And so we don't want to be vulnerable like that. And so it was much easier for me the first six or seven years that I was working, speaking, I was only talking about resilience in kids. I was too cowardly to talk about resilience in adults because as adults, I want to be told how we could do things differently. That's really hard. People push back about that but we are eager to hear how we could strengthen our children. And it was easy for me. And one of the real blessings of having four boys is I can tell tons of stories about my kids like this. One of my sons, <laughs> and nobody knows who, sometimes my kids don't even know who. And, and I never tell a story about them without their permission, but they also know they have a little bit of cover with having three brothers that it could be any one of them. And it was easier for me to talk about how I messed up as a parent and because, you know, I could say, and here's how it turned out. And they seem like they're doing okay. And I can laugh at myself and the mistakes that I've made a lot, much harder to say, here's where I was rejected. Here's where I failed in a relationship. Like with my mom, I can't fix that. She died. That relationship is like, that story is closed. My telling of it, my inner narrative, the resilience I build from it, what I learned from her, what I share of her with my kids, that all has room to grow. But whatever I did, you're going to judge it. And even if I'm able to hear your judgment and get a great idea, which is hard, I'm not going to be able to do anything about it. It's done. So I found it much more difficult to share vulnerability as an adult to adults about adult things <laughs> than I did talking about parenting. I do still talk about parenting because there's so much we can do for our kids by having empathy and getting out of their way a little bit. One of the most controversial things, I just said it last week when I was speaking for an audience on Zoom of 2,000 high school parents, I said, the most controversial thing I'm going to tell you to do as a parent is to stop tracking your children. And I understand how scary that is, but then I show the evidence and how tracking doesn't actually save kids' lives, but it does drive up rates of anxiety in children and in parents. And it does decrease rates of matriculation to graduation in college, meaning they get in, but they don't finish. And tracking, it turns out, makes that worse. So 
it was easier to talk about kids and the science about them and what we could do for them than to talk about me and us. I love that. Absolutely. And I do agree with you in terms of tracking. It gets a little hairy when they start driving. I get a little nervous, but we're supposed to get nervous. And I mean, you and I weren't tracked. I don't think any of us were tracked. I mean, the good old days, being a parent and touching upon that. And I know my struggles every flipping day with four boys. It is a zoo. I live in a frat house. Sometimes I like to think, you know, just it's a lot. How do you do it all? And speaking of doing it all, because we had a little talk before we started this episode and I'm just of the type that I feel like I can do it all. I can do this, that, this, there are no limits. And you speak on that specifically, especially as a mom and a woman or a woman. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the hack answer to how I do it all is my house is messy actually messy. Not like it looks great. And I say it's messy. So you'll tell me how great it looks. It's actually messy. That's one thing. That's just not something that stresses me. But if it's something that stresses you, if you can't peacefully coexist in a house that's messy, then that's not your thing. Find the thing that bugs you least and let it go. That's one hack. The other hack is my kids do most everything for our home. Most everything. And I have different ages where I started. And like, I have some cred here. There's a video on YouTube called eight-year-old teaches college students to do the laundry. That's my 15-year-old when he was eight, because in my house, when you turn seven, you start doing the laundry for the whole family. And when you turn nine, you start making school lunches for everybody each night. And when you turn 11, you are responsible for cleaning the kitchen at the end of the evening, making sure everything's put back. And when you turn 13, you make dinner for the family once a week and, and, and. So I don't do laundry except my own. And I cook dinner two or three nights a week. And one of those, we might do takeout because I have a job and like I can afford it. So my kids can't, they can't be like, it's my night, we're gonna do takeout unless they can afford it, in which case maybe. So I delegate and I don't just delegate because I don't wanna do it myself. Although gospel, I hate making school lunches. Delegate the things you least like to do because you'll be the most forgiving of them taking longer to get it right. But anyway, I delegate everything because I never want to hear from one of my future children-in-law, did you know that your son can't even, and also because there are colleges where you can pay full credit tuition to have them learn life skills. Yeah, I can teach them to do the laundry. I can't teach French literature or BC calculus. So I don't want to pay for that. I can teach that. And If you need more reason to get your kids to do everything around the house that they're even almost capable of doing, it turns out the kids who have chores that contribute to the whole family choose to spend more of their free time with their family. What? Okay. So those are my hacks. But the bigger question I think, Jules, that you're asking about is how do we as adult women balance? And this is, so I'm really curious if the three of you have experienced the same tension. I had this tension between like, I want to do and be and accomplish. And so to do that, you got to like, there's some stress involved. If you're going to go out and get a job, there's some stress involved. I mean, I want to point out if you don't have a job and you need one, there's some stress involved. So it's not like you could sit on the couch and eat truffles or go out and get a job, but you're going to go out and get a job and you're going to get the job that you could really launch you or that you really would be hard, but exciting. Well, that's more stressful. You're going to try for a relationship that you think could really fulfill you that can be stressful. You're going to plan a cool anniversary celebration for your parents. That's stressful, but it's also a wonderful, loving thing to do. All that stuff 
balanced with this thing that we've been hearing for decades, which is stress is poison. If you want to be healthy and you want to live a long life, you should avoid stress, decrease the stress in your life. If somebody's causing you stress, you should get away from that mess. If you're causing stress in someone else's life, maybe you're the villain. I was like, I don't understand how to navigate this. And for me, it came to a head in medical school when they were telling me, take more shifts, go be in this club, run this thing, do this experiment, where's your research? And what we were studying in class was stress is the leading risk factor for everything that kills you. Tell your patients to avoid stress. Most of my classmates would just joke. They'd be like, well, obviously they don't want the competition of us finishing and being doctors. They're trying to kill us now. And, and I was like, no, there's, this is a bigger, more important question. I'm not saying none of my colleagues saw that. I'm just saying for me, I was like, how can I be studying so hard and it's so stressful? And what I'm studying is stress is bad. It can't be that simple. And in my TED talk, I talk about how I figured this out, but I will jump ahead and shorthand it and say, what I figured out is that stress is not a toxin, it's a tool. Just like I mentioned earlier about exercise, eat to do it. For me, I like exercise like I like the dishes. I like for it to be done, but I do not like to do it. But I recognize the value, both in clean dishes and exercise. And I want you to recognize the value in stress. Now, if I got up and I tried to run an Ironman triathlon, I could legit die. I'm not ready, but I could train up for it. And if all the stresses that I've been through in my life came at me at once, I could legit die. Stress is damaging. There's no question if it comes at you too much or from too many directions, or if you are too weakened to be able to handle it, you need training. You need to train yourself up, just like if I wanted to run that Ironman. But I could go out and walk a block. So I could take on one thing. So when we start to look at stress as a tool, a tool that can bash your head in, but that you can't build your life without it, then we start to have an outlook that says, it's not whether I'm doing too much, it's if I am doing the things that help me be the kind of person I want to be. That might be the fed, housed, employed person I want to be. It's not all lofty, meta, amazing things. But do my actions align with my priorities? That's the hardest question, I think, for women and, and really important. That's amazing. I think that, I mean, for me personally, with my story, like what you said really resonates with me about like optimal anxiety, like not all anxiety is bad. And I was always under the impression that if I feared something, if I felt anxiety, and if any discomfort go the other way. And it wasn't until I walked into that discomfort, I embraced that change. That was when I really started to live within alignment of those values I had that you're talking about. I mean, earlier you mentioned talking about it with children seems easier about how to help our children have that. So as adults, how do we start cultivating that in our lives today? Tia, you just said something so important that you had this belief. And I will tell you, you were taught this and I'm not blaming your parents or your educators or your doctors. I'm saying our society teaches that if your gut tells you something is not okay, walk away from it. We have a lot of lore around that, right? What's your gut reaction? What does your gut tell you? What are your instincts about this? Well, I got to tell you, just like my junior year in high school, English teacher tried to tell me my rough draft is not as good as my final copy can be. My initial instinct is not as good as thinking about it for a minute and editing it could be. So when you have that gut reaction and you've been told or taught or breathed in for so many years, this idea that if something is uncomfortable, it is wrong, then you're really stuck. 
So what we have to figure out as adults, and it goes to the heart of what you're talking about, Tia, is that some anxiety is optimal. When my kids go explore in the urban park near our home, which is a pretty extensive park, I want them to have some anxiety about very high places. I want them to have some anxiety about electric wires and climbing telephone poles. Four boys, right? Don't die is the first rule in my family. Like my kids, we have two rules. Don't die and don't be a jerk. So, and it covers, I got to tell you, like 90% of their decision-making, if they just keep those two things in mind, we will be okay. So in any case, Tia, if you can figure out what is uncomfortable and what is truly unsafe, when something is unsafe and whether those, that's someone's words or your work situation or your relationship or an environment, whatever it is, if something is truly unsafe, you should say, yo, time out, stop. Everything has to change. I need other people to fix this, or I got to fix this, or I got to walk away from this. But when things are uncomfortable, but not unsafe, that's usually where we grow. And it sucks. And it's where we grow. What we have not cultivated in ourselves or in our children is the ability to figure out what is only uncomfortable and get empathy for it and support for it, not just suck it up, like get empathy and support. What is awful, sweetheart, but it's not actually unsafe and what's truly unsafe. And we're cultivating a generation by giving each child a trophy. That's a part of it. But I actually think the bigger issue is not giving each person a trophy. It's being afraid of their discomfort if they didn't get a trophy. Right. That's the end result of what we're struggling with. We don't know. And I got to say, Jules, it's why we track our kids because we are too uncomfortable knowing that they're driving and we don't know where or how fast they're driving or who they're Mm -hmm. with. Well, we have to get better at managing our own discomfort so that they can know that we believe that even when they're not okay, they have the skills to get help or figure it out. And if we think they genuinely don't have those skills, one of the biggest, not biggest, one of the most frequent questions I get on my website about parenting, because my website is split into three. There's like for youth and for you and for your work. And in the youth section, Every year, I get lots of parents saying, my kid wants to trick or treat alone. Oh my gosh, I don't want to let them. And I got to tell you that I get this question about six-year-olds and 16-year-olds and everybody in between. And so what I say is, they say, should they trick or treat alone? I've never met this child. I don't know your neighborhood. So I say, I don't know, but you do know. So I say, ask yourself, and this actually, I'm actually working on some content for my email. I have thousands of folks on an email list and I'm really really cognizant of what an honor that is. And this week we're talking about YOLO and FONO, right? YOLO is you only live once. And a lot of people coming out of the pandemic are having that feeling. We're picturing a 40% job change rate this year of people being like, I'm in the wrong place for a million reasons and taking trips they've never taken and and saying things to people they've never said because we just had 14 months of restriction, but also FONO, fear of normal. Oh, I don't know that one. This is how people are even fully vaccinated, even with decreasing rates of virus. They're having trouble coming back to environments like eating in a restaurant they had felt totally comfortable in and never questioned. We're having this fear of normal, fear of sending our kids back to school, even if it looks okay, even if the research says it's okay. And so I'm talking this week in my email blast about that crossover of YOLO and FONO, fear of normal, and what's that doing to us? And I am answering in the you section I'm answering this issue of trying to decide, trying to figure out what action should I take? Maybe it's that you want to quit your job and move to Bemidji, 
and is because of YOLO, or maybe it's, I'm afraid to go to the park, but wherever it is, I'm giving these three steps. The first step is have empathy for your feelings. There are no wrong feelings. If that's how you feel, that's how you feel. That's okay. The second is ask a question. And this is how it ties into the the trick-or-treating question. Ask what if. What if you did it? Whatever it is that you're contemplating doing, what if you did it? What are the things that are, what are the likely outcomes, meaning good and bad? And what are you worried is like the worst thing that could happen? What are the risks? And how does it balance out in terms of the kind of person that you want to be to navigate this change and come through it the kind of person you want to be? How do those things balance out? And then the third suggestion that I give is if it's not totally clear to you, bring it to somebody you trust, somebody you trust to care about you and somebody you trust to tell you the truth. And I'm hoping that's one person, (laughs) right? I'm hoping you have lots of people like that, but bring it to one person that you trust to care about you, have empathy for you, not tell you how you should feel or how dumb you are or anything awful like that, and tell you the truth about their opinion about that. And with all that information, you don't just have to rely on all of that, like, oh my gosh, which anxiety is optimal and which anxiety is pathologic and what do I... You can say like, okay, I have empathy for my feelings. Everybody has feelings. Those feelings are totally valid. And what if I did it? And if I'm, it's still not clear to me what path to move forward, I'll ask someone I trust. I mean, that is such important advice to these parents and the helicopter parents that are, you know, you well, are, not, you are good not. enough, Jules. We got to snowplow these kids. Oh, snowplow these kids. Right. Cause I, then, cause in a helicopter, you can see what happens, but what are you going to do? Parachute mm-hmm. in? Like you got to get out in front of them and lawnmower or snowplow smooth the way. Oh my gosh. It was so different way back when, but I mean, you touched upon just the phono versus YOLO. And first of all, you we can't diminish your role as a frontline worker during these past 14 months. And we are so grateful for you and others like you that I'm going to say risk their lives or put themselves in the way of danger, so to speak, or possible danger. So thank you. How do you foresee the idea of resiliency kind of infused in post-pandemic life? Are we going to need more of you? I mean, I feel like we're going to need more of you. Little soldiers, (laughs) Dr. G soldiers, because well, what I want to say is this has been awful. And for everyone listening, for the losses that you've experienced, everybody's experienced loss, but we haven't all experienced the same degree of loss. I'm really sorry for the people that you've lost and for the safety and that belief in just some of the personal beliefs that you've had to lose. It's been an incredibly difficult time. And I think not coincidentally. It's been an amazing time of change about social justice in this country where a lot of people's lived experience is more heard and more clear. It's not heard enough and it's not clear enough, but there is a lot of change to navigate. And for some of it, I'm tremendously grateful. And for some of it, I am tremendously sorry. And everybody's got that experience. But I I point out those two huge shifts to say, we can use that as a lens on our own lives to figure out what we want to ditch and what we want to keep from the last 15 months. Because there are some things at the micro level, there's probably people you've been in touch with differently than you'd been in touch with them before. There's probably time you spent with your family or with yourself or with hobbies that you didn't spend before. And not all that, there's an old, old expression, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is whack when people had wells and when you had water that was really too dirty to use, you'd toss it out into the backyard and fill it up again. 
well, you want to take the baby out of the bucket, out of the bath before you throw out the bathwater, meaning there's stuff to keep from the last year. And there's stuff to never touch again or to learn from and move away from. So the resilience that we can find is exactly what I was talking about before, that when you're going through something hard, you know that old, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I really think my next TED Talk might be, what doesn't kill you might just make you miserable. Meaning a lot of people, you don't naturally automatically become stronger. If I can lean on this exercise analogy another time, if you set out to build your fitness by walking a block, and then maybe by next week, you can walk two blocks. And by the week after that, you can walk quarter of a mile, you will get stronger. But if you park your car in a parking lot, can't remember where it is, and you wander around looking for it, that one walk is not going to build your fitness, right? And in the same way, just going through something difficult and fronting that you're okay doesn't strengthen your mental health. It doesn't make you more resilient. But if you can be just a little bit intentional about it, just a little bit on purpose about using that stress to be less winded later, then not only our kids, who, by the way, are going through something really hard with us by their sides, and so when they go through something really hard as adults, they'll have some strategies that we didn't, but also ourselves, we can, in 2023, go through something difficult and be like, whew, but I've been through the pandemic and I learned some stuff about me. Amazing. I mean, Dr. G, thank you so much for being with us today. You give an amazing insight. I took some notes. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our obsessed listeners are taking notes also. And please replay this episode so that when you replay it, you replay it again, you're able to catch something that you probably didn't catch the first or second time. But Dr. G, Before we wrap this up, what are your final thoughts that you want to leave everyone away? Final message. You belong on your priority list. And that's not my original idea. I'm taking that from Oprah circa 1993. You belong on your list of priorities. Not only because if you don't put on your own oxygen mask first, you're going to keel over while you're trying to help somebody you love, but also because this is your chance to live and model the kind of life that you want for you and that you want for the people who look up to you, whether it's at work or it's at home or it's in your extended family or it's in a Facebook group, there's somebody who thinks you're really pretty cool and is wondering how you do it. And if you treat yourself poorly, they'll think that's what they have to do. And if you treat yourself well, they'll know that that's what they have to do too. Wow. Thank you. And again, You can find Dr. G everywhere. We'll leave all sorts of juicy tidbits in our show notes. And thank you, Dr. G. Get in touch with Dr. G and ask Dr. G anything. Thank you so much for being a part of our conversation. I loved it. I learned with you. Thank you. You're so sweet. Wasn't that an amazing episode? Thank you, Dr. G, for blessing us with an amazing discussion on resiliency and sharing your amazing knowledge with us with what does resiliency look like? What does it mean for all of us? And I encourage you all to get obsessed 
with Dr. G. And there's a reason why I'm obsessed with her. She is amazing. I took so many notes and I'm sure you did as well. What were your takeaways from today's episode with our guest, Dr. G? Follow her on social media. Links will be listed in the show notes. And also follow your favorite obsessed girls on social media. And also let's just continue this conversation online. Visit our website and also share this information, this podcast with your family, your friends, anyone who you think could really benefit, which is every human being on this planet can benefit with today's message on resiliency. This is really a powerful, powerful episode, and I really enjoyed today's episode, and I'm sure you did as well. So subscribe, like, and leave us a review on social media, on Spotify, on Google, on iTunes. Thank you so much for tuning in. We appreciate you all. This episode and also this podcast is for you. So we'd love to hear your feedback. So bye for now, please. I'm going to catch my crown and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mwah.